Well, good morning. If you uh, got your Bible, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be in verses 16 through 20 this morning, talking about the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. These are some of the, no Siri, that's the first time that's happened. Um, these are some of the most common words you will hear around the church. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. So last weekend, I had the opportunity to uh, go to a little men's retreat in Peoria. I was locked in a church for three days. I got to listen to 15 talks on the Christian life. And uh, I did all of this without a watch on my wrist and a phone in my pocket. One of the interesting things about this weekend was uh, it was very humbling for me. Uh, it was very humbling to see um, men devoted to Jesus wrestling with the truth and how it applies to their way of life. But most of all, what was humbling to me is this realization that I was going through throughout the whole weekend that I am a very distracted individual. There's something funny about not having our phone um, on us or a watch to know what time it is that kind of gives um, us some unsettling feelings uh, in our soul. And as I kind of went through the weekend and, and realized just how distracted I was and realized that, um, that I, I very much don't like to be out of control. I don't like to be um, able to, to, to not escape into things like social media and escape into things like the endless sports feed of Bleacher Report and escape into the news and these things. And I found as I wrestled with this distraction that I'm constantly plagued with that my attention is easily captured uh, by entertaining thoughts of leisure. My affections are captured by ideas of escaping uh, the responsibilities that I'm called to in my everyday life. When I feel the weight and the stresses of this life, I'm prone to escape and give my affections to other things that are not gospel-focused. I'm easily ensnared by the lures and the temptations of sin in my life all the time. And one of the interesting things, especially as it relates to our sin, is we constantly tell ourselves and try to convince ourselves to just have one more taste of what we know will swallow us whole. Our priorities are mixed up, and they're always riding the tension of, of being completely devoted to the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God. If we're honest with ourselves, if we look at our priorities, if we look at our lives, if we look at our affections, if we look at the things that take our attention, if we look at the things we enjoy, we will find that they often don't line up with God's priorities, what God's affections are, what God's attention is toward. If you've been around church long enough, you've heard the phrase, make disciples. If you haven't heard this, and this is like the first time you're here and make disciples, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm thankful that this is something you get to hear this morning. Making disciples means simply orienting our lives around being a follower of Jesus that helps others follow Jesus. It's the great call that Christ has placed upon his church to spread the kingdom throughout the earth. It's our mission, our task, our calling, and our purpose in the world. The reality for many of us today is this. God has given us a mission, and we have become distracted people who fill our time 
with things that do not accomplish this mission. As God's people, he has called us to use our time, effort, resources, and lives to the expansion of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But if we look at our lives and how we spend our resources and how we spend our time, we will discover that the call to make disciples does not shape us maybe in the way we thought it did. It can be easy for us to fall into uh, temptations to measure success in the local church by numerical growth, by looking around on a Sunday morning and seeing how many chairs are full or empty, or by looking at a, a statement of financials of the church to see where we're at, or to look at the success of, of a building campaign, or the opportunity to, to, to grow and expand uh, the use and the kingdom use of our property. We could, we could fall into these temptations to see success in these superficial ways that are actually rooted in our cultural understanding of success and not scripture. You see, God's, uh, God's way of measuring success is, is not through numbers, it's not through analytics, it's not through statistics, it's through stories. And God measures this success through stories, and, and we as a local church try to, to, to do this. We try to measure the success of our, of, our, of our local body and what we're doing and what God is doing here, which is most important, through seeing how God, by his grace, is impacting stories. That's why when you look in your program every week, you don't necessarily see a statement of financials. You see evidence of how God's grace is at work in the stories of people here in this community. And yes, financials are important. Numbers and numerical growth are important. Building campaigns are important. All of these things point to and tell a story, but they're not the point. We tend to emphasize this point when we think about success. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm tempted to think of these things as success as well. And so I want you to turn your ear to the word this morning. I want you to turn your heart to the word this morning. I, I, I don't want to open up the text this morning thinking about making disciples and be tempted to, to think that as a church we've arrived in our fulfillment of this mission. I don't, I don't want to be tempted that way. If we do, if we think that we've arrived as a church body and the, the commission that God has placed on our lives to make disciples, then we will miss the treasures of what God has for us in his word this morning. Don't tune out thinking this message is not for you just because you've been a Christian for a while or you serve in a ministry around here. This is for all of us. Let's lean in together this morning to the great call to make disciples. And let's confess this reality together, that each of us has a long way to grow when it comes to our participation in the expansion of God's kingdom on this earth. And so let's go to the word with a longing for God to impact our hearts, to further devote our lives to this call, and center our lives around the great commission. Let's read Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20 together. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
the resurrected Jesus commanded the disciples to go to Galilee. Now, um, it's really difficult when you look at the Gospels to kind of try to put in chronological order the events that happened between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven. But what we do know is that sometime within the 40-day period that the resurrected Jesus walked the earth, the disciples started in Jerusalem, went back to Galilee for a time, and then went back toward Jerusalem um, and to a, a town kind of near Jerusalem called Bethany. And Bethany is actually the area that Jesus was when he ascended into heaven. And he commanded the disciples to stay in Jerusalem, and we'll pick up in the book of Acts here in a few weeks and, and, and talk about that. But one of the interesting things is while the disciples were in Galilee for this unknown time, Jesus appeared to them twice that we see in Scripture. Um, the two times, are, the first one was at the Sea of Galilee when, when Jesus restored Peter. Uh, we talked about that last, last week. Pastor Dave walked us through that passage together. And then this, the, the, the telling of the Great Commission at some mountain in Galilee. And so Jesus directed the disciples to go. Here they go. They obey. And they see him. And something interesting that we see here is uh, there's a distinction that Matthew specifically makes. Uh, he says that some worshipped and some doubted. And uh, there's, there's like debate and things whether this some doubted is referring to the 11 disciples or some other group of people here. Uh, but I don't think that's the point. What I think the point of that, that phrase is, some worshipped, some doubted, is it, it draws us into the text to remind us that even though they saw the resurrected Jesus. Some of them were still hesitant. You see, some worshipped. Some expressed their complete devotion and reliance to Christ, while others hesitated to do so. Some saw Jesus as God incarnated in the flesh, resurrected Son of God, Messiah, Savior of the world, and some hesitated. And this shouldn't surprise us, because a group of people that Jesus consistently rebuked for having little faith, even facing the resurrected Jesus, are still hesitant. And I think it's a reminder this morning for us, as we wrestle with how we are called to make disciples, that the natural inclination of your heart and my heart is to hesitate and justify. And to say to ourselves that we're making disciples by reducing our disciple-making efforts to means that are more comfortable, more easy, more simple, and not realizing the radical nature of what God is calling us to in orienting our lives, centering our lives around making disciples. So Jesus moves near the 11 disciples and he says this. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus states that the Father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. All of the ruling power of the universe the ruling power of the universe is held in the office of Messiah, Christ. Christ himself exercises this authority and ruling power. And one of the interesting things that Jesus is actually doing here is he's alluding back to a prophecy from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 that says this, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. That's God. Listen to this. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. 
Jesus, in claiming his authority over the universe, sets the stage for his disciples with what he's about to tell them. Jesus, the, the whole point of the idea to make disciples is not the task, it's who told us to do it. You see, we are commanded to make disciples by the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We are commanded to make disciples by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And scripture over and over and over again throughout the Bible testifies to the magnitude of this authority that Jesus is commanding his disciples with. Jesus right now, as we are talking, is seated at the right hand of God. I want you to think about that for a minute. He is seated at the right hand of God. He's sitting down. He is not concerned. He is not worried. He is not anxious. He is just fine. And he is seated at the right hand of God. He is exercising his ruling authority over the earth. You see, Jesus, because he has such authority, appoints leaders to power. Jesus, because of his authority, causes governments to prosper or crumble. Jesus, because of his ruling authority, has the authority to judge every single living person that has ever walked the earth. And Jesus, because of his ruling authority, knows intimately every single person who has ever walked the earth. King Jesus is his name, and he reigns completely over all things, upholding the entire universe by the word of his power. You see, this king, this one with authority, doesn't just have authority over governments and how the earth works and holding molecules together. You see, this king subdues the wicked human heart, beckoning us to obedience in Christ, creating in us a love to God and an affection for his name that is contrary to our nature and impossible for us to possess on our own. Jesus, in his ruling authority, cleanses us of the entirety of evil's grasp on our soul. He calls us to greater depths of trust and compels us, sends us, motivates us, enables us to walk out lives devoted to God, driven to reach people. This Christ, this one with authority, is one who demands worship. He doesn't request it. He demands worship. We could talk all day on the supremacy of Jesus' name, on the office that he holds as ruler. But I hope that as we, we contemplate and we think about the authority of Jesus, that our attention would be drawn, not just to his authority, but what he commands us to do in all that authority, to make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples, he says, of all nations, baptizing them. The disciples would have heard this order from Jesus and they would have reflected back on all the things that Jesus had done with them. You see, Jesus, back in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will send you out to fish for people. Come follow me. Come be my disciples. Come learn from me. Come learn my ways. Come walk in the way that I walk. Go the places I go and be with the people that I'm with. Jesus spent three and a half years with these guys. And when they would have heard, go and make disciples, they would have looked back on these three and a half years that they spent with Jesus and they would have said to themselves, okay, whatever he did with us, we need to go do with others. They would have thought of the Sermon on the Mount. They would have thought of the miracles that Jesus did. They would have thought of the parables, the example of complete devotion to God that Jesus modeled for them every single second 
of his presence with them, a deep love and concern for the vulnerable, and a life of deeply devoted prayer. These memories would remind them of who Christ was and call them to pull close people to do the same thing, to pull people close to do the same thing with them. They would have heard this and known that Jesus was not just calling them to uh, some sort of uh, you know, public ministry where they were disconnected from people and always in the front of the room and always talking at people. You see, Jesus was calling them to be intimately involved in the lives of people. The Great Commission is one of involvement and one that moves us toward lives, moves us toward stories, moves us toward people, not events, not buildings, not numbers. The Great Commission moves us toward people. And the disciples would have heard this and they would have heard the call to be deeply involved. And Jesus characterizes this involvement. He doesn't say everything we need to do to be involved. That would be a long list of things that he would have never stopped talking. He characterizes his, his call for us to be involved in the lives of people by two things, baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. And so in baptism, we see this picture of being involved in the lives of people as it relates to their conversion, as it relates to their coming to faith. You see, baptism is this picture of a redeemed life, of a life that has been saved, of a life that has died to their old ways by the power of God and been resurrected to new life in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Baptism is not just something that characterizes what it means to make disciples in regards to being involved in conversion. It's a command for us as followers of Jesus to obey. If you're in here and you claim to follow Jesus and you have not been baptized, you stand in disobedience to Christ's command to be baptized. Jesus himself was baptized. And so we must obey the king who has all authority and publicly proclaim our faith, publicly proclaim the goodness of what God has done in us. And so if you've not been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus in here, talk to an elder. I urge you, talk with an elder and talk about what this could look like for you. So baptism is a picture of the converting work of God, causing us to die to our old life of sin and be reborn by the power of God's spirit to new life in Christ. It's a physical depiction of the inward cleansing of Christ's blood on our soul. God washes away our rebellion and implants on us the righteousness of Christ so that when he looks at us, he does not see our sinful corruption. He sees the perfect righteousness and obedience of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the good news of the gospel It is a call in baptism. It is a call. As we are called to move near people and be involved in people's lives in baptism, we are called to move near people's lives in conversion. Our involvement in conversion reaches from our neighborhoods, our local context, to the nations. The first thing he says to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. All nations. As followers of Jesus, we should be a people who long for others to experience the incredible love of God that has been showered on us who believe. There should be this longing and this urging for other people in our lives to know who Christ is. And this urge in us that God has given us, that is a God-given urge, is a call to be involved in the lives of people who do not know the Lord. If you're in Christ in here and all of your friends are Christians, you might want to reconsider 
making space for non-believers in your lives. We are not called to live in a holy huddle as followers of Jesus. We are called to go out. We are called to go out. Look, we know the truth. We know that there is an infinite, holy God who has made a way to cleanse the world of unrighteousness without removing entirely the most unrighteous aspect of the world, us. You see, God has made a way to eradicate evil and restore humanity. If we know this truth, if we genuinely know this truth, then we should be compelled to share it with people. We should be compelled to go and tell and talk about it. And this idea and desire to be involved in the lives of people as they come to faith should be something that characterizes every single thing we do, characterizes how we work, it characterizes how we're at school, how we have conversations with people. You see, because even as we talk to people, we have on our mind the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of this world. If we believe this, shouldn't there be like this deep love and desire for others to experience the depth of the grace that we've received? If we genuinely care for one another and for others, shouldn't our concern extend to those who do not know Christ? How open are you to be used by God to share the good news of people, or share the good news of God with people you work with? Are you more fearful of the consequences you could receive from men through rejection than the eternal consequences that await every soul who has not been redeemed? Look, these are difficult questions we have to wrestle with if we're in Christ. We, we, we must wrestle with these questions because the reality is, is we can't be silent on this. We can't. When I was, uh, when I was in high school, I, I kind of moved around a ton, right? So I went to three high schools in three years. And I dropped out of high school after my junior year. Surprise. I don't have a high school degree. Um, one of the amazing things um, regarding my, my story is just how God consistently worked in my life from years ago all, all the way leading up to my conversion. There's just many little things that God did but one thing that surprised me was a few months after I came to faith, you know, we live in a world where we can just kind of advertise everything on social media. And so, like, I was, like, putting my faith on social media. And to be honest, sometimes I look like a jerk. So uh, be careful how you do that. I got in many difficult conversations and even, you know, internet arguments with people regarding my newfound faith in Christ. But one of the more encouraging and troubling things that happened to me as I was interacting with people from North Carolina that I went to school with down there and Metamora that I went to school with there and, and Washington because I spent like 42 days out of a 180-day school year going there. Um, yeah, I missed a lot of school. Anyway, one of the more encouraging and troubling things were all these people that I interacted with through these three years of high school reaching out to me. And they were expressing their joy that this guy who they knew to abuse narcotics came to faith. This joy that, that somebody they knew who was a very, very big troublemaker began to experience the grace and mercy of God. And this was encouraging to me. I was excited. But what was troubling to me is this. You know, I realized as these people were reaching out to me that I knew far fewer Christians or far more Christians than I thought. For many of these people, this was the first time I was hearing about their faith in Christ after I came to faith. After it was easy for them to approach me 
with their excitement for who Jesus was. How hard is it for the people in your life to see your affection for Jesus? How hard is it for the people in your life to see your affection for Jesus? Is it a secret? Because the reality is, is that God calls us to move toward people like me, people like you, with the good news. And we should not find out, other people should not find out that we are believers in Christ after they've come to faith. Because our involvement should be in the midst of their conversion, not after it. Not just after it. The Great Commission is a call for us to be involved in the conversion of others. We can't be passive in our kingdom efforts. Scripture calls us to make every effort to work out our salvation, to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. And we work out our salvation in working toward the salvation of other people. This isn't just a one and done conversation. Many people think that sharing the gospel is like this one and done thing. I'm going to go, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, I'm going to tell you about the law, I'm going to tell you why, you're, why you don't know God, and I'm going to tell you how Christ has made a way for you to know God. And I've had my conversation, I'm done, I can disengage. This isn't a one-time conversation. Sometimes, sometimes, God does and works amazing things in people's lives. And there's these, these, these small acts of God's faithfulness at work. So by the time we get to them, it appears like it was one conversation. And they come to faith. But the reality is, is there was many things that needed to happen before that, that God was doing, that we didn't even see. And we just got to be harvesters, not necessarily the planters or the waterers of that person's salvation. But more often than not, it's not this one-time conversation where somebody comes to faith. More often, it's years of involvement in somebody's life. Listen, if, if there's somebody in your life that you want to see know the Lord, and you have been involved in their lives for years, God is teaching you perseverance as you continue to pray for them, persist in their lives, and continue to be bold in your gospel efforts to make Christ known to them. You see, faithfulness over the long haul in somebody else's life reminds us of God's faithfulness to us while we continue to run away. Because God was faithful to pursue us over the long haul of our life, we too are able to be involved in the long haul of others. Conversion is not just an event, it is a process. Some of you might have a story like mine where like, there's just one day that I can point to. Um, I was on my knees in rehab when I came to faith. But for some of you, it was this process of God stirring up your affections for him over the long haul. And you began to be more interested in the things of God and more interested in Scripture. And it was more of a process and not an event. And so our involvement needs to be in the event and in the process. If our involvement in the neighborhood is real, then we cannot, we cannot ignore our involvement in the nations. Uh, some of you may know, uh, this week... Uh, the international is the international day of prayer uh, for the persecuted church. I don't know how many of you have thought about the persecuted church or uh, thought about it regularly. I tell you what, you, you teach on the Great Commission and it just causes you to think about the persecuted church more. But we cannot be so involved in the neighborhood that we neglect the nations. Listen, there are missionaries in here. Missionaries that are called to go and make Christ known in places that Christ has not 
been heard. There are people that God is raising up in this church to go. Go. And ask us to help send you. May we be a sending church that raises up people to go to the nations with the good news of the gospel and to partner with the persecuted church in our prayers, in our resources, in our time. May we think globally as a church and not just in our local context of Eureka. Look, there are countless job opportunities for some of you. Some of you work in, in, in trade, you know, like plumbers, electricians, farmers, whatever. Many of you work in a trade. Those trades can be useful in countries that have not heard the gospel. And here's an amazing thing. There are many, 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 many job opportunities for people in countries around the world to do the same thing you're doing here, there. And here's the amazing thing about this. You get to be in a place where the gospel might have not been heard. You get to work and raise your family and take care and provide, and you don't need to be a missionary who needs to raise support. Okay, it's a pretty sweet deal. And so let's not just think of missionaries as somebody that needs to quit their job and go, but maybe somebody who needs to take their job and go. Students, many of you can enroll in colleges around the world and pay a fraction of the tuition costs you do here and get the same degree in a nation that might provide you with more opportunities to expand the kingdom to people who haven't heard it before. Don't just use your college years as an opportunity to prepare for your own future. Use your college years as an opportunity to expand the kingdom of God. To leverage those years for the sake of the kingdom yields high reward. Yields high reward. And so think about that. You could go for co to college for free in a nation that has never heard the gospel or is very hostile to the gospel. And you can leverage those years for the sake of the kingdom. This is, this is what that song talks about that we were talking about earlier, about centering our lives. Every single decision we make is centered in the kingdom. I always tell uh, students who are asking me about colleges, uh, you know, they're asking for wisdom, how do I find a college, things like that. And usually what I tell them this is, don't look for a college, look for a local church. When you find a local church, you find your college. Because the church, the faith family that God is calling you toward, that's going to be the community that God is calling you to invest in. And if there's a college around there, that's the one that you should go to. A lot of times college students look for a school and then it takes them years to find a local church. And it creates this, this difficulty in this season of, of waywardness and because they don't have that community of faith there. Every single decision we make needs to revolve around being involved in the lives of people and their conversion and being involved in the lives of people as it relates to their sanctification. The church today, I want to say this, the church today, think about this. The church has existed for almost 2,000 years, right? The church today has the most resources it's had in its 2,000 years of, of existence. There is an abundance of resources available to the local church now that, are far, that far exceed the local church in the past. The church is the wealthiest it's been in the history of time. There should not be a missionary or a church plant somewhere in the world that is underfunded because of the abundance of resources that we have. And so we don't just leverage our jobs and leverage our, our future or our school 
or our time. We leverage our wallets for the sake of the kingdom. And we think globally with our wallets as well as our, our time and our lives. Where your treasure is, your heart is there also. We should have a relentless passion for the conversion of people. And this requires us to associate with people who might be a little different than us. It means being eager to open up your home to a stranger, a refugee, a retiree, an immigrant, a widow, a single parent, an orphan. See, the, the, the call to be involved and invested in the conversion of others is a call to be eager to associate with lowly people. It means being consistent in sharing the gospel with a person who comes to church all the time but hasn't necessarily had their affections reworked to point toward Christ. The Great Commission means caring for the poor and vulnerable with joy and not just doing charity that feeds hungry people, but doing charity that feeds people with the very words of God so they can taste and see that the Lord is good. It means caring with compassion and resolving in your heart to no longer ignore those whom God is calling you to move near in your life. You see, the Great Commission is all about leveraging our time, energy, resources, and lives for the sake of expanding the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It means being eager to see the enemies of God brought near and made sons and daughters. It means being eager to move near people, to see them come to faith so that we can no longer just call them friends, but we can call them family in the body of Christ. And the Great Commission doesn't stop when somebody comes to Christ. It intensifies. The responsibility heightens even more in verse 20 when Christ calls us not to just be involved in the conversion of people, but to be involved in their sanctification. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and remember I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Baptism comes with this picture of conversion, but teaching people to observe the commands of Christ, that's this lifelong process, this lifelong involvement in the lives of the people that we know who are in Christ. We are called by God to persist in getting involved, involved in other people's lives so we can see them become more and more like Jesus. Once someone comes to faith, they're sanctified. They're declared holy. That's what that means. They're set apart for God's holy use. They are cleansed of their unrighteousness, of the filth, of their sin, and placed on them is the righteousness and goodness of Jesus. They're declared this. This is an event. But then after that, 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 that event is this, this process of being made more and more into the image and likeness of Christ, of God molding and shaping our hearts, of tearing down our affections for the world and building up our affections for the kingdom of God. And this process is something that God moves us to be involved in as believers in Christ. And notice how Jesus says to, to teach them to obey everything he has commanded, everything I have commanded. These are not teaching people our own ideas and thoughts, but they're getting ever more acquainted with the word of God ourselves so that we can help others understand the commands of Jesus and help them walk out those commands. As we think about our involvement in the growth of others, just a few things come to mind. One of them is unity. We must be a people who persist in loving unity with our brothers and sisters in the faith. If we're going to be involved in one another's process of growth, we're going to be acquainted with each other's junk. Right? Amen? We will be sinned against. Someone in the body of Christ will lash out against us in anger 
Somebody in the body of Christ will hurt us, gossip about us, offend us. And we will do the same. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And the reality for you and me is that we are called to pursue unity in this body. And so we are not called to run away when this happens. We are called to lean in. We are not called to ignore the other person and sit on the other side of the church. We are called not to turn around and badmouth them to another person, covering up our gossip as a prayer request. We are called to make every effort to preserve the unity of this faith family for the glory of God and the good of one another. We love one another. Jesus said that they, the world, will know you by the way you love each other, by the way we love the special love reserved for people in the body of Christ. And so we, when, when somebody sins against us, we deal with it. We talk about it. We work it out because we're family, and family does that. And we do it not, not with this desire to, to put the other person down. No, no, no. We deal with it in loving forgiveness and a desire to bring about the restoration of the relationship, the restoration of the person. We don't hold grudges or slander each other. And we don't hide from engaging with the body because we've been hurt by somebody in the body. We lean in. Look, if we hear of anything compromising unity in our local church, we are called as members of the body of Christ to shut it down for the goal of seeking the redemptive unity of the local church. And so unity, another is purity. Right? My motives are not always pure. I struggle with sin just like the rest of you do. I struggle with temptations of pride, gaining the approval of others. And I need brothers and sisters working together to expose and pres- the sin in my life and preserve my own purity. I need somebody to hold me accountable and remind me of the deceitfulness of sin and the goodness of God's grace and his mercy. I need someone to give me a good rebuke and I need to be reminded that a good rebuke for the man pursuing Christ is a blessing. We need to be willing to step into one another's lives and get real. Here's the deal. If we're going to be in community, if we're going to be involved in carrying out the Great Commission in in the sanctification of one another and the growth of one another, if we're going to get involved in preserving the unity and purity of our local body, we got to get past, hey, how are you doing? We have to move into an intimate friendship for the sake of God's redemptive glory in our own lives. We have to start confessing our need for God to one another. We need to involve ourselves in the sin of others. Let me say that again. We need to involve ourselves in the sins of others because God says in Galatians 6, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. Dave talked about this like in the beginning. Carry one another's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is to get into the mess with them and help them run to the gospel. Being in Christ gives us the responsibility as the people of God to do two things, both make our sins known to others for the sake of being restored and experiencing God's grace and community and helping others see the blind spots in their life, bringing about restoration to those who are blinded to their own sin. This is the joy of being in Christ together. And things get very, very real when we are committed to unity and to purity. 
And the goal of this is our maturity in the faith. Maturity is the goal of sanctification. In the letter of Colossians, Paul speaks about his motives for preaching the gospel in this way. He says, we proclaim him, we proclaim Jesus, warning and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We strive for relationships to mature in the faith and help others. This is a process that takes time, consistency, and patience with one another. And we bear with one another in this way. Crosspoint, how would the community of faith here be strengthened if we sought with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to preserve the purity, the unity of this body and see this body reach maturity in the faith? If that was on our mind when we walked in these doors, what would that do to the body of Christ here? The closing words of Matthew's gospel account are beautiful. He says, and surely I will be with you even to the end of the age. You see, Matthew structures his entire gospel um, for a reason. And one of the like five or six reasons Matthew wrote his gospel was to reveal the Messiah as not just the Savior of the world, but Emmanuel, God with us. In the birth story in Matthew chapter one, he opens up this theme by saying, an angel proclaiming to Mary, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he closes his gospel, reflecting back on that promise given to Mary when Jesus was born, showing that promise being brought to its fulfillment and Christ declaring, and surely I will be with you even to the end of the age. Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who has all reigning authority, is with us and in us. And so we can have confidence as we make disciples that we are doing it for the name of Christ, that we are set apart as Christ's possession and are able to do this work. This is an incredible call, one that would be very impossible for you and I to complete on our own. And here's the deal. We've been here for a long time today. I've gone over. But the reality is, is I could preach for hours on the Great Commission. I could. And I don't want to give you the burden of listening to me for hours talking about the Great Commission. But here's the reality. The weight of God's call on our lives is so vast. I want you to hear this. The weight of God's call to make disciples is so huge that we have joined the 2,000-year discipline of thinking out the implications of making, our, making disciples in our everyday way of life. People have been unpacking, unpacking how to make disciples for 2,000 years. 2,000 years. This is such a grand call that after 2,000 years, we can still think of ways to creatively carry out this mission on earth. Our best efforts to fulfill the command of our king are impossible if we do not depend on the one who is with us. The reality is for you and I is that we can't do this. The call to be deeply and intimately connected to people in their conversion and in their sanctification is something we are incapable of doing. But Christ has promised that he is with us. And it is not in our own power and our own strength that we involve ourselves in the lives of people, it's in his. And one of the amazing things about this promise is the guarantee of success in the mission. You see, Christ doesn't give us a mission with a question mark at the end. You see, the gates of hell will not prevail against the progression of the church. The most notorious evil that you can conjure is powerless as it relates to the movement of God's kingdom progressing on earth. Because the one who has ruling authority over evil has commanded us to go and guaranteed success because he will be with us. 
And so in that relationship that you're with, with that person that you think is too far gone, the one with authority can overcome that evil, and he's called you to move near that person. That job that might seem like a hostile place for you to share the gospel cannot stop the progression and movement of the kingdom because Christ is with you. Because Christ is with you. I'm going to close with a quote from a book I'm reading. I love this. It says this, listen. Whether you are expecting it or not, the baton of faith passed down from generation to generation has now been slapped into your hands. The worship team will come up. Whether you are expecting it or not, the baton of faith has been passed down from generation to generation to generation and it's been slapped into your hands. Run. Run. And fix your eyes on the one who is with you. Fix your eyes on the King of kings and the Lord of lords who gives you the ability to run one step at a time. Let's pray. Father, you reign over the heavens and the earth. You are God. You are incredible. You have empowered us to walk out this call. And so God, as we respond in worship, as we respond, I pray that you would fill our minds with ways that you are calling us to grow in our ability to make disciples. God, we confess that we cannot do this on our own. We confess that our feeble efforts to make Christ known are empty if we are not depending on you to do so. And so, God, I pray that you would help us, that you would help us see opportunities in our lives, in our jobs, in our schools, in our community, to make Christ known, to involve ourselves in the conversion of people, that we would see the dead reborn, that we would see new lives resurrected out of death and new life breathed into them in Christ. God, that we would see people over the long haul gradually made more and more into the image of Christ because the supernatural power of you at work in them is overwhelming. And God, I pray most of all that you would give us a deep desire to do these things. God, that we would seek for this to be our ultimate pleasure and pursuit in this life, to adore you and help others adore you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.